We'll begin regardless of the technology. We'll figure this out as we go ahead. Our speaker today is Tenkid Bradshaw, and he is famous above all because of his book that he's written on the end of the British Empire in the Gulf. So this is a subject uh, that is original, and we are going to hear part of it this afternoon. The title of this talk, uh, Sir William Luce and the Creation of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Tangrid himself received his PhD from the school, uh, London School of Oriental and African Studies. He's taught at Birkbeck, University of London, City University, Florida State University, and his books, many books include uh, works on King Abdullah of Jordan, as well as on the Gulf. Uh, he's presently working on a book entitled Britain and Oman, The Illusion of Independence. Thank you very much. Should we just, just do it like that? I think so. Great. Thank you very, thank you very much, Roger. Um, it's a great honor um, to be invited to come, uh, to come here. And uh, greetings, Longhorns. I've been, just been walking around the campus, and it's truly impressive. Um, to come here. I'm just over at the LBJ library and it, it really is fantastic um, the material that is available to historians in, in that archive. Um, well thank you very much uh, for coming this afternoon um, to, to hear me um, because what I'm going to talk to you about is very obscure. Um, it, well it just is. Um, one of the curious things about this subject is the fact that the Persian Gulf as we know it today receives a lot of media attention. But if you go back 50 years, or to, in the post-war era, the reality is, um, is that Gulf was an imperial backwater. Um, before I continue, I should probably explain the, the, the first photograph here. Um, because I, you, could, you probably could, I don't know if you, everyone can see it, um, what it shows um, is actually really interesting. And I've chosen, it's the same photograph that's on the cover of my book. And I chose it quite deliberately. Uh, because what it shows, the man in the photograph is called Sheikh Shakput. Shakput became uh, the ruler of Abu Dhabi in 1928. Uh, his predecessors had all been murdered. There was this tendency in Abu Dhabi until then for the rulers to kill each other. And his mother, the Sheikhah, um, told the brothers not to kill each other in the future. Shakput, which is what happened, by the way, will come across his brother, Sheikh Zayed, a little later on. Um, Shakput ruled Abu, Abu Dhabi until August 1966. And the reason why I chose this photograph is because it shows various things. In the background, you've got his fort. If you go to Abu Dhabi, I, has anyone here ever been to the UAE, the Gulf? Anyone ever been there? Yeah, good, excellent. Then you'll know what I'm talking about. So the fort in the background is now a museum. And Abu Dhabi does not look like what I'm just about to show you. Neither does Dubai, for that matter. It is surreal. For those of us who've been all around the Arab world, um, it is like nothing you've ever seen before. Anyway, so Shakput um, is a, was a, I think Shakput was actually a really interesting character. Um, on his right hand, he's, he's got a buzzard. And sheikhs, um, to, even today, you, hawking is regarded as a shapely sport. Mm -hmm. On the other side, you've got the model of an oil well. 
The photograph itself was taken in 1960 or thereabouts. And oil was actually discovered in Abu Dhabi, just off the coast of Abu Dhabi in 1958. And the reason why Shakput is interesting um, is for a variety of reasons, actually. Shakput refused to spend any oil money that the state was starting to earn from 1962 onwards. Um, Shakput was the epitome of the tribal sheikh, the sort of thing that doesn't exist anymore, arguably, in the UAE. Politics in shakely rule has changed in the Emirates. So the British, and Shakput is interesting because the British decided to overthrow him in 1966. And this is an interesting story because if you want to study this, good luck. This is because the records are all closed till 2026. So you might, you could, we could discuss this in questions if you like, but how do I know what happened? Well, I'll tell you because I know someone who was on the spot at the time. And the person in question is giving me a blow-by-blow -blow account of precisely what happened. So there you go. The point is, for, for if you're doing research on a question like this, it's very helpful to meet people who are there on the spot. Because if you go there today, it's like nothing compared to what it was like um, 50 years ago. Let's uh, move on. So we need to just think. Do it for that. That's probably. Oh, no, oh, thank you very much. So the next one, please. Thank you, Philippa. Down. There we go. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. So what we've, I've got uh, um, two maps and some more photographs to show you. So the first thing I need to do is, is to define for you the nature of British interests in, in, the, in what were called the Trucial States and what are now the United Emirates. The reason for doing this is because the region is obscure. Little is known about it. Little has been written um, about this era. So uh, some explanation is required for the audience. Once I've done that, I want to explain the background and the consequences of the British decision in January 1968 to retreat from the Gulf. The third part of the talk concerns the role of Sir William Luce, who will come onto a little later on, and how the Foreign Office decided to divest itself of its role in the Trucial States. In fact, we could argue, ask the question, did the British even leave the United Arab Emirates or Oman? I'm not so sure about that. Anyway, so Britain's interests. Thank you. Uh, no, just, that's fine. Oh, Thanks, Holly. Okay. Okay. So the, 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 we have this map. The map here is useful because what I want to explain to you here is, is a few things. Um, Britain's interests in, in, what, in, in what are called the Trucial States. They were called Trucial States because in the early 19th century, from 1820s onwards, the East India Company, uh, followed by the government of India, signed a series of truces and treaties with the sheikhs of what are now the United Arab Emirates. That's why they took on the name Trucial States. And so, what we got, so the basic principle that a, the government of India applied in the, in the Persian Gulf region was a policy of non-intervention in land. The British were only concerned with maintaining peace at sea. There was very little um, intervention on land. And the British clearly, it's very clear for, for people who study India, the way in which the British applied Indian methods in the Gulf. 
So it's, it's applied knowledge. So who was, who was responsible for the management of British affairs from the early 19th century until the end of the British era in 1971. Well, th this was the role of someone called the political resident in the Persian Gulf. The political resident, excuse me, was originally based here at Bashir on the Arabian coast. In 1946, the political residency moved to Bahrain, which is here. And over time, what the British did was, was they established what were called political agencies. There was one originally in Kuwait until Kuwait became independent in the early 60s. Kuwait's here. There was also a political agency in Bahrain. Bahrain was chosen because it's the most advanced. It was the most advanced sheikhdom in the region. And there was a sheikhdom at Doha, this is now in Qatar. There was, there was agencies at Abu Dhabi, Dubai, which is here. And just to confuse you, um, if you go around the corner, the Oman, which is here, to Muscat, Muscat was lethal as a posting for, for officials. Muscat had a political agency. It's all the same thing. The key person was the political resident. The people responsible for the management of British imperialism in the Gulf until the 1970s was the political resident. We'll come across one of them a little later on. And also the political agents. So the key role of the, political, of, of the British official was the maintenance of friendly and cordial relations with the sheikhs. I'm going to show you another map in just a second, which is really important because the British created the system of rule and the, and the boundaries of what are now the United Emirates. The relationship between the two, i.e. the British, British officials, the handful of officials who served in the Gulf and the sheikhs is absolutely crucial. This is fundamentally what, the, what this is all about. And I, the reason why I choose Shakput is because Shakput is a case study in the limitations of British imperialism in the Gulf. This is because the British enjoyed responsibility without power, if that makes sense. In other words, the British, because of their treaty relations, were responsible for the foreign relations of the sheikdoms. They were also, by, by default, they became also responsible for the foreign policy of, of the Sultanate of Oman as well, until 1971. So the British role here is, is, is subtle. It, it's, it, it varies. And so the assumption often is, is that the British click their fingers and the rulers do what they're told. It wasn't as simple as that. And this is a fundamental point, is this... Um, this key issue of this, this subtle relationship. And one of the British officials, someone called Glenn Barthel Paul, who wrote about this um, in a couple of books, um, talked about this subtle relationship. And it's really interesting and in how he spoke about the nature of British influence and how the British may or may not have got what they wanted. So in the Gulf as a region really becomes significant. Um, can we have the... The next one, please. Thank you. Okay. All right. Okay. So, thank you very much, Philippa. The second map. Um, excellent. Thank you so much. The second, my second map. I, I'm sorry you can't see it in, in its full. Um, the second map shows the boundaries of the Trucial States. This map was drawn in 1963, and if you were to look at it closely, what you would see is the Trucial States. Um, look like a Swiss cheese. The reason is because the, the government of India and the Foreign Office made no attempt to amalgamate the sheikhdoms. None whatsoever. 
um, they would have no interest in doing so. The, the system worked well for them. There was no need to. Leave the shakes to it. So the bound, you see the boundaries that you see here. The, these boundaries, the inter-shake, interstate boundaries were drawn by someone called Julian Walker. His name's on the map. And the story behind the drawing, there's actually, there's a second sheet, but I've just shown you one of them. The story behind the drawing of these maps is fascinating. I won't go into it because it's a different lecture. Um, and some of it's just highly entertaining when you meet people. Julian Walker's dead now, but I know his colleagues and they've kind of given me the lowdown. And it's, it's really quite fascinating going around I'm talking to the sheikhs, who owns which well and all the rest. It's fascinating. And it gives you an indication of the extent to which the British penetrated the trucial states in terms of the drawing of their boundaries. That's, it's, so it's really important. So let's we'll try the next. Does this work? Okay. So what I want to do now is to show you some photographs. The first, this photograph is a photograph of Abu Dhabi in 1960. The, ru the ruler's palace, can I just slip past? Thank you. The ruler's palace is roughly here, just off the photograph. So this, to most people, this, when you read about what it was like, Arch Archie Lamb, who was the, um, the political agent at Abu Dhabi from, from 1965 thereafter, several years thereafter, I can't remember when he left, Archie, La Archie Lamb described Abu Dhabi is a fishing village. And the population is about 20,000. Who knows? No one was counting. And you should be very wary of what people say about the, the, the actual, pop, the real population of the UAE today. It's very controversial. It's not what they say it is. So, so let, let's say that you're a diplomat. Um, after, in, in 1948, the Foreign Office took responsibility for the, for the trucial states. And the, and the Persian Gulf as a whole after the demise of the Raj. The Foreign Office knew nothing about this part of the world, nothing, um, because it was not within their, uh, an area of responsibility for them. The Foreign Office was interested in things like it with the Sauds and also in Iran, but not in the Trucial State. So the depth of knowledge was very limited. Whitehall knew nothing about the Trucial States, nothing. And this is revealed very clearly in the, in the documents that were written in the Foreign Office at the time. They had no idea. And the political resident would say, you don't understand what's going on here. And so the, for the Foreign Office, this was a very steep learning curve to understand this, this backwater of the British Empire. But what's really interesting is this. When you studied this, the, in the post-war era, there's a vast growth in, in the official records. This book is based on about 40,000 pages of documents. It's vast. And the scale of the documentation tells us how important this part of the world became. So who did the British send to do this? Well, in the post-war era, what the Foreign Office did was they raised, they recruited men, they're all men in those days in, in, in the office, in the Foreign Office, and so they were it recruited mainly from Oxford and Cambridge, not surprisingly, and what, they, what the office did was they sent them to Beirut, someone called Shemlan, where they spent 18 months learning Arabic to a very high level, to translate a level. And so then what they did was the first, most of the, the people who were at Shemlan were sent to the Gulf. And you ask them the question, so how much training was there? And they laugh in your, well, they're polite. No training, none. They'd learned on the job. It's extraordinary. So then they, they were sent from Beirut down to the Gulf. So how'd you get that? Oh, by, my, by Jidda, for example. 
drove there. And it looks, if you look at the photograph, can I have the next one, please? Thank you. Um, the next image is, is another one of, of Abu Dhabi. These are the traditional huts, Barasti huts, that the population lived in. It was poor. It was, it was the epitome. There was no development. The government of India did nothing to develop this part of the world. So the officials arrived there. The climate is ferocious, as you're probably aware. Only Muscat is worse. It's <laughs> appalling. I mean, the summers are something else. Um, so they, 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 these people were sent there. And it, it has all the features of what is known in the trade as a hardship posting. But they loved it. They loved it. I mean, everyone I've spoken to, and I've spoken to a number of people who served in this um, part of the world, they, in both in something called the Trucial Omart Scouts, which was the armed force that the British established in 1951, and also in the, the diplomats, they had great affection for it because it allowed them to conduct a form of diplomacy that was unique in the world at the time. There was nothing else like it. And one, one person I spoke to, um, who later became ambassador um, to the UAE, in fact, there are two ambassadors, but who became ambassador, he's the, probably the most distinguished Arabist living today. He said to me that as second secretary in Dubai, he had more power as a junior diplomat than he did as ambassador 30 years later. And I think that really tells you everything you need to know. It's extraordinary. The whole setup um, is extraordinary. And in the post-war era, the, the British became more interventionist for a variety of reasons. One of them, and they're interrelated, borders, oil, and internal security. And it was the British and the Trucial Oman scouts that were responsible for introducing security in the desert interior of the Trucial states for the first time. This is one of the most significant British contributions to this part of the world in the post-war era. People will tell you um, that the British brought the Trucial states into the 20th century. But it wasn't as simple as that. There were significant limitations on what the British could do. Could I have the next one, please? So Abu Dhabi, at the, at the two most important sheikdoms then and now are Abu Dhabi and Dubai. This photograph here is Dubai Creek, around 1960. I've chose this photograph because it tells us something. What it shows you, if you look closely, that the fishermen, they're, they're fishermen. They aren't Arabs. They're probably from the Indian subcontinent. Yeah, there is an Arab. He's dressed in black wearing the kafir, the white kafir on, on, on the right-hand side of the photograph. Can I see the next one as well, please? Thank you. Um, the next one, um, this is also Dubai Creek. The reason why Dubai was important because it was the entrepot of the, of the United, of the Trucial States, a position it still holds today. It's the economic center. It has some oil, but the oil's in Abu Dhabi, under Abu Dhabi control, which is why today Abu Dhabi, since independence, so-called independence, Abu Dhabi is the most powerful of the, of, the, of the states. So what we've got here is this. And by the way, the, the buildings that you see, the towers, they're wind towers, by the way. And the, the, the wind there, if you stand underneath one, they really work. It's, it's medieval air conditioning. 
And if you go there today, I mean, I, I've taken, been to more or less where these photographs were taken. I'm sure I'm not the only person here who has. And what happened is after independence, all this was knocked down because, you know, it's out of date. Well, um, but now they're trying to rebuild and it looks awful because it's so obviously contrived. So, so the point, so the, my, what I'm trying to show you here uh, by my, through my introduction is the way in which the Trucial States were a unique entity in, in the British imperial system in the post-war era. If you read the textbooks on the British Empire in the Middle East, we are off, more often than not told that the post-war era was an era of decline. This is true. But in, 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 the, in the Persian Gulf, in the Trucial States, and in Oman, which is a totally different subject to this one, um, this is quite the opposite. In the post-war era, Brit as I've shown, British interests significantly expanded on an unprecedented scale. And this is reflected by the vast scale of the reporting that researchers can read um, in the archives. So, by, so in other words, the, so, the, so what, I've what is clear, what is interesting is when did the British, when did the British start talking about leaving? Um, I would argue much earlier than you think. Most people, Roger's written about this and other people have written about this. I've come across documents in the archives that show that the Foreign Office was actually talking about leaving as um, the debate started in 1960 within the Foreign Office. The assumption was that the British would leave by 1975. Why? Because imperialism by the 1960s was an anachronism. Which it was. But as is well known, and very things have been written about why is it that the British withdrew? Because the simple fact is, when it came down to it, this, this was, this was low-cost imperialism. The, the, the British, 90% or thereabouts of expenditure on, in the Trucial states in the, post, in the 50s and 60s went on defence and funding the Trucial Oman Scouts. The, the amount of money that was spent on development was totally inadequate. It was a really big problem. And this, officials will tell you this. Um, the reason is because the Treasury simply refused to, to cough up said, no, we're not paying for this. And when they started seeing how the shakedoms were starting to earn money from oil, they said, that, uh, this is not our problem. And so the British did spend money on these issues, not out of any sense of obligation. Let's be honest about it. The reason why the British started to spend money is because of the Arab League threat. The Trucial, the Trucial States, and to a much greater extent, Oman, the Sultanate, were separate from the Arab mainstream. They were total, they, they had little to do with the Arab world as, as such, for historic reasons. Kuwait did, but the Trucial States most emphatically didn't. And the Foreign Office went to great lengths to keep out their opponents, such as the, particularly the Arab League. In 1964 and 65, this is what happened. So what happened in the, in, in the Trucial States is Whitehall intervened. Whitehall was clueless. If you go through the records, what you'll see is that the Whitehall officials rarely visited, ministers rarely visited. Policy on the Trucial States and the UAE and Oman was largely made in the Foreign Office by, uh, the, by the officials, with a lot of input from, from the Gulf itself. So what happens is Wilson. Wilson coming to power in 1964, and I tell you, there are lots of documents over in LBJ on this very subject. 
it's really worth going to look at if, for that angle. So what happened, as is well known, in January 1968, Wilson um, states to, to the House of Commons that the British are going to leave by the end of 1971. This is well known. I mean, Roger's written, Roger's written about it, and so have various other people. This is well known. What I'm trying to say to you, that as my research shows that the thinking starts much earlier, but in practice, um, at a political level, um, in terms of Wilson and the members of the cabinet, who knew nothing about this part of the world, and it only cost us 25 million a year as pocket change. Um, so what, how, in the, in the UAE, how, what, how did they respond in the Trucial states and in the Gulf region to this remarkable British decision? which had no strategic rationale whatsoever. It was purely determined, I think, by domestic political considerations. Well, you can imagine, the rulers felt betrayed. Sheikh Zayed, um, can I have the next slide, please? Thank you very much, Philippa. This is Sheikh Zayed here. I was meant to wear his pin. I've got a Sheikh Zayed pin, but I forgot to put it on. I've got to show my loyalties, you know. This is Sheikh Zayed here. I've got another one coming for him later. Sheikh Zayed, where he became, as I said earlier, became ruler of Abu Dhabi in 1966. And Sheikh Zayed um, is, was a charismatic figure. He arguably was the founder of the United Arab Emirates. He's a very interesting personality. So Sheikh Zayed um, offered to cover the British costs in the Persian Gulf, 25 million. He could afford it. He was starting to make a killing on the oil markets at the time. The Shah of Iran um, re renewed Iran's long-standing claim to Bahrain. In fact, the Shah, there are lots of really good documents in LBJ about the Shah and his BDI waiting for the British to retreat and taking command. Because, of course, the British regarded themselves as the policemen of the Persian Gulf. So someone's got to fill the void, haven't they? And so the Shah is the obvious person. Um, likewise, King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, the fundamental issue between the Saudis and the British concerned an oasis. Um, I'm not going to go back, but it's called Buremi. It's on the border of, of Abu Dhabi and um, Oman. And there have been a long-running dispute since the early 50s. And the Foreign Office, because they were um, the traditional states' diplomat, had failed to, to conclude a diplomatic um, solution to the question of boundaries between um, the trucial states and Saudi Arabia. And that still exists today, by the way. It's very, that's controversial, to put it mildly. So, but, and what about, what about Washington? What did the LBJ administration take, make of this? They were furious, um, for really good reason, because Wilson and his, and, his, and his colleagues had shown up in Washington on a number of occasions in the mid-1960s, promising LBJ and company that the British were staying in the Gulf. And so when, when LBJ hears this, he is, he is furious. And wouldn't you be? But it's, what I find interesting is that shortly after the decision is announced to leave, Wilson goes to see LBJ in Washington, and the Gulf is not mentioned. That's interesting. I, I don't know why. It just isn't. We can, who knows? So what policy did the Foreign Office um, follow between 1968 and 1970, two years. They, don't forget, they got three years to do this. So how were the first two years handled by the office? So I, I always call it the office. It's just what they call it. I'm so indoctrinated now but in, into, into the system. Um, 
Well, the Foreign Office uh, adopted an atta a um, and a detached policy. They wanted to avoid the impression that they were the framers of, of the um, enforcing a framework on, on the sheikhs. They were happy to advise, advice and not, on, not much more, really. So what they did was they left it to the rulers themselves to create the state. Um, at the time, the, what, they were trying to, what were they trying to achieve, the rulers at the time? They were, trying, they were talking about a structural a relationship between the seven, there were seven trucial states, seven, I should have said this before, seven, seven states making up the trucial states, of which, as I said, Abu Dhabi and Dubai are the most important. And then on top of that, you've got um, Bahrain and Qatar. And the idea was to join all seven together to create nine. Um, but to cut a very long story short, and I'll tell you the documentation on this is painful, um, but you can cut to the chase because the Foreign Office being the Foreign Office, you've got some excellent documents that summarize everything you need to know. Um, to cut a long story short, the, the Foreign Office, what everyone realized this was nonsense. This was never going to happen. So the fundamental, the reason why it was never going to happen is because the rulers had no experience of cooperation. All British attempts to get the rulers of the Trucial States to cooperate with each other through various bodies, something called the Trucial States Council, which had been established in the early 1950s, had been an outright failure. Even the threat of the Arab League to the Trucial States in the mid-1960s wasn't enough to get the rulers to cooperate with each other. So in other words, the idea that the rulers could, could find a solution to their political problems was about zero. So what, did, what was the, the Foreign Office trying to achieve here? Well, to put it very simply, to put it bluntly, to get out unscathed. Um, you see, the difference between the Trucial States, this part of the world, um, and, and other examples of British imperialism, take your pick, Palestine, wherever you like, is that, in, well, let's not get on to Palestine, but the simple fact is, in, <laughs> please don't. Um, um, but if, if you look at other examples of British imperialism elsewhere, um, a lot of shots were fired, as we know. There was a lot of fighting in various places. One of the interesting things about the Trucial States was there was no opposition to the British present, none. Uh, how do we know this? Well, because you read the intelligence reports of the Joint Intelligence Committee, the CIA produced national intelligence estimates. No one reads this stuff. It's amazing. It's all in the archives if, if you want to go and read it. And what I'll give you the gist of it. Basically, what the, the, the intelligence community was saying, and they earn their pay, these people. They're really good at what they do. What they're saying is there's no opposition in the Trucial States. The main problem that the British faced from the 1950s onwards was radio propaganda from Cairo. That was a real problem. And because everyone listened to the radio. Don't forget that the population was almost entirely illiterate. So the radio, and if you talk to the people there, that's what they'll tell you. That everyone in the souk is listening to the radio. And so radio propaganda is the main challenge. The, the, in, only in Bahrain had there been the, right, the development of opposition groups, and that's about it. In the Trucial States, not a problem. There had been violence in various occasions, such as, um, as a result of the Suez Crisis. But as a general rule, the Trucial States were quiescent. The British did not need to fight their way out had, like they had in Palestine, for example. So it is different. So what were the funders? So basically... What the British were trying to do here in the final years, and it's too little too late, first of all is to strengthen the internal security and policing 
situation in the Trucial States. In the Trucial States, the British like, had established the armed forces, the Trucial Scots, which the British wanted you to believe were the armed force of the, of, the, of the Emirates. In fact, it was completely under the control of the political residents. It had established police services, um, intelligence uh, networks in the Gulf to, to find out what's going on. Um, they tried to enhance the administration. That was always a huge headache for the Foreign Office. This is because the rulers and the population, it's a complete absence of education. The rulers feared education for reasons that are probably obvious to you, because education spells trouble if you're a ruler. Um, they tried to solve boundary disputes. Some of it was successful, particularly internally, but, but they didn't succeed with the boundary between um, the crucial states in Saudi Arabia. That was an ongoing problem that was never solved by the British. They just gave up. So what were the fundamental problems? The well, too little time, two, three years. The to the secondly, as I've said, the rulers were totally ill-equipped to negotiate their future. Um, the evidence clearly shows that they were, were incapable or unwilling to settle their traditional differences. The smaller sheikhdoms feared Abu Dhabi in particular. They feared Abu Dhabi and Sheikh Zayed because by now Sheikh Zayed is becoming rich and the dominant state in the Trucial states. It's inevitable. Um, there was the possibility of, of, of violence, but it never happened, particularly against oil facilities. So, my, so what I'm saying is the intelligence people got it right in this case. So the simple fact is, in these two years, the rulers were talking about alternative for forms of union. Why is it that they did not talk about the unification of the seven sheikdoms, because that appears to be the obvious solution. Well, the answer is because the Foreign Office, I won't bore you with the names, there are documents, key documents in the archive, if you dig around, where they talk about this in 1967. And what they decided in 1967, that the Trucial states are not in a position to run their own affairs because they simply lack the bureaucratic institution. State formation has not occurred. But things are changing. Um, the, the force of circumstances forces the, the rulers to wake up. So that leads, so in other words, by the, by the summer of 1970, June 1970, we have a change in power, a change of government in London. This is crucial. So, so Edward, Ted, Edward Heath becomes the new prime minister. Heath was, is part of, was actually part of the problem, not the solution. Heath had visited the Gulf in, in April 1969, and he argued that the, the policy of withdrawing should be reversed. Glenn Balfour Paul, who I've mentioned earlier, argued this was a disaster on two feet. This was because it led the rulers to believe um, that the British would not leave. This, so obviously, this is a real problem. Um, so the, what did the Foreign Office think of Heath and, and his ideas? Ridiculous, that's what they thought. Uh, in detail, it's just nonsense. There's no way that we can do this. I mean, it's forget it. It's just not possible. So the Foreign Secretary, Alec Douglas Hume, supported the official mind. In other words, the, the Foreign Office, particularly the Arabian Department of the Foreign Office, um, and in terms of their perspective about the future. And the cabinet in July 1970 forced the, 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 for, supported the idea that the Foreign Office should have a much more direct role in the future. 
So what did the what did the Foreign Secretary do? Well, this is where Sir William Luce comes into the scene. Sir William Luce was born in 1907. He joined the Sudan political service in 1930, He's, and he served in the Sudan into the mid-1950s. Thereafter, he became Governor General in Aden. And, and finally, in 1961, he became the political resident of the Persian Gulf. Sir William Luce was the ultimate proconsul of, of his era. He was extremely powerful. And when Luce retired from the Gulf in 1966, his departure was lamented by everyone. And Sir William Luce played a central role in the development of British thinking about the future of the Gulf. So his appointment by Lord, by um, I always say Lord Hume, it's Alec Douglas, ADH, I'll call him, um, makes it easier. Um, by the Foreign Secretary was really obvious because of his, his expertise. And before be becoming the Foreign Policy, the Foreign Secretary's advisor, um, Luce had written a series of articles um, in, in a variety of journals where it was very clear, if you read them, what he thought. The most important thing, he thought the whole departure from the Gulf was ridiculous and completely devoid of any strategic rationale. Fine. So, um, but he was not foolish. He realised that steps had to be taken and fast to deal with this problem because it had gone nowhere since 1968. And he, he saw very clearly that the rulers had to cooperate um, to, to, to create a future for themselves. So, and he also he thought that it was quite unrealistic to reverse any discussion with withdrawal. So he's saying to the Prime Minister, no, this is not going to work. Completely unviable. But he also argued that the rulers could be given assurances of British support. This is important. So what were the problems that had to be solved between the summer of 1970 and December 1971 when the British finally leave? Three, uh, sorry, three. First of all, uh, Luce had to solve Aram's claims to the islands, the, these Gulf islands in the Gulf that they've been talking about for years, and Bahrain as well. The other thing they had to talk about was to try to deal with the Saudi claim um, to Abu Dhabi. And they've been talking about making claims, extravagant claims to Abu Dhabi since the 1930s, actually. This is the one area where he failed. Um, because for, for various reasons, um, Luce was not able to, to get Sheikh Zayed, despite his best efforts, to, to, to agree a deal. And the third thing that he had to, to, to sort out where he did succeed was the, some sort of federation of the sheikdoms. So, in other words, he's got to deal with Iran. The second thing he's got to do um, is, is frontiers, which he didn't succeed in doing. And the third thing which, where he did succeed was the creation of a federation of the sheikdoms. So what did he do? So what did Sir William do, the ultimate proconsul? the epitome of, of British diplomacy of the, of the era. So what he did was, in the, in, in the autumn, sorry, the fall of 1970, he toured um, Iran, the Trucial States, and Saudi Arabia to meet with all the key people, King Faisal, the Shah, and the rulers of the Trucial States, making it clear to them, particularly to the rulers, what's coming. Okay, who's boss? So in other words, this, as I've shown my conclusion, why this is important, so the simple fact is the neighboring states, I mean the Saudis 
And the Iranians wanted the British to leave, as I pointed out earlier, for obvious reasons. Is they, wanted, they wanted to assert their own interests in the Gulf. Luce told the, the sheikhs that there would be no treaties, future treaties. All the treaty relationships that existed since the early 19th century, established with the East India Company and the, and the government of India, would be, would be struck out. That's what this is all about, this photograph here. This photograph here is taken in December 1970. Uh, it's, it's not Sir William Luce. I couldn't find one of Luce, actually, that I could download. This is Sir Geoffrey Arthur. Arthur. Jeff, oh, oh, can we? Sorry. Yes, please. So no, it's just it's just um, we've lost the. It's there. So so what what the photograph shows is December 1970. Sir Geoffrey Arthur, the final political resident, signing the various the treaty with Sheikh Zayed about the British leaving. Okay, that's what it's all about. And so what you've got here. Um, no, that's fine. Just that. Just thank you very much, Philippa. And um, so at the time. In, 19, in the autumn of the fall of sorry of 1970, it seemed like that the Union of Nine remained the preferred option amongst the diplomats. So what Lu, what did Luce do? He he goes around, he tours, he talks to everyone who counts to find out what they think, and he submits two reports to the cabinet in December 1970. Report number one um, was based on the assumption that there would be some sort of federation. But there would be no formal British military presence, but there would be training. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The simple point here, the takeaway here, is defence interests were key. This is what it's all about, is defence interests. It's nothing has changed. It, it's very important. The idea was that British officers, who had always commanded the local forces, would, would, would simply change their uniforms and be there to train the local forces. It's a form of influence. So the, second so the second report is much more interesting. And this is very interesting to, to, to read, because what it shows you is this is redacted. Well, most of the versions are redacted. The Foreign Office copies are redacted. But if you look elsewhere, you'll find the unredacted version. I showed it to someone who was in the Foreign Office. And he said to me, whatever you do, do not use the information that in the unredacted report. And he said to me, that in, in parentheses, where did you find this? I just couldn't remember. I couldn't remember. Well, of course I know where I found it. Um, but, because I should have tested him and to see whether it was still in the archives a week later. I, I, did, I wasn't going to play that game. Um, the reason, so what the second report talks about is that Bahrain and, and, and Qatar would become independent. Also, what Luce was talking about, that the concept of protecting the crucial states um, would be rescinded. But the key thing here is the rulers of the five fallen sheikhs. Can I have the next one, please, so that, I, that I can show you a rogues gallery? Okay. Yes, please. That's the last one. Right. Here we go. So, okay. So the key players in this photograph are, this is Sheikh Zayed. Uh, ruler of Abu Dhabi. This is the ruler of um, Sheikh Rashid, the ruler of Dubai. These are the key players in, in, in the crucial states at the time. The others of no consequence. They never, they never were. They have, if you go to them today, it's really interesting. If you go, because I was taken around to all of, of the sheikhdoms. I can't help calling them that. And still today, they count for, they count for nothing because they've got no resources. 
and you know the little little specks on the map. So that so another so what happened was in the summer of 1970, Sheikh Zayed, the the two key sheikhs Zayed and Rashid do a, reach a secret deal about the formation of of a union whereby the two would share power. That's what happens today, is that the 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 the, the, the ruler of Abu Dhabi is the key player, is the president, and the ruler of 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 Dubai is vice president. Okay, and the rest. Doesn't matter. Oh, by the way, the reason why there are only six, there should be, ah, ah I almost forgot. Um, the re there should be seven, but there are only six. That is because the ruler of Sharjah refused to sign up um, to, to the creation of the state. And this photograph was taken just after the, the previous photograph. And Sharjah, the reason is because the, the, the ruler of Sharjah did, the, did not agree with, the, or, with the, or, the arrangements leading to the creation of the state. So that's why there's six. But he joined a couple of months after uh, the creation of the state in December 1971. So basically, the, to go a long story short, is, is this, is that the second report is really controversial. You can see why um, they were, didn't want me to use it. Because what Sir William Luce was talking about ha, is actually merging the five sm smaller sheikdoms with, the, with Abu Dhabi and Dubai. A bit of regime change, ladies and gentlemen. And in basic way, he said, if the ruler of Ras al-Khaimah objects to this, and he approaches the Iraqis, we'll dispatch him too. Now, Sir William Lewis had form when it came to the overthrowing rulers. He'd, he'd advocated the overthrow of Shakput. He'd overseen the overthrow ruler of Sharjah in 1965. So he wasn't averse to a bit of regime change. But don't say that to the Foreign Office, by the way, because they'll get really upset. This, these are the sorts of documents that get withheld by the Foreign Office. So was there any alternative to this? Yeah, there was. It's, it's called Greater Oman, this idea that the Trucial States could have joined Oman. It didn't happen for a various reasons. Firstly, because in, June, in the summer of 1970, uh, the current, well, the, he just died. Sultan Qaboos came to power and he had other preoccupations, particularly an insurgency um, in, 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 in part of um, Oman. So basically, the final months, to cut a long story short, the final months, Sir William Luce and the officials in the Foreign Office and in the Gulf played a key role in the creation of what is now the United Arab Emirates. Bahrain and Qatar became independent states. They did not join um, it was inconceivable that they could. Um, one, one reason is because of the bitter disputes between the ruling families. They can't stand the sight of each other. Um, and also, the idea that Bahrain being in a system like this is, was dangerous because it was the larger than any of the other states. So basically, what you've got here is this. The, the key point here is that um, Luce was played a key role in solving the diplomatic problems with, with Iran. And so what happened, at the end of November 1971, the, the Iranians occupied the Gulf Islands. The British knew exactly what was going on, and they did nothing to stop it. Nothing. Um, it was a fait accompli. So the simple fact is the British withdrawal from the Gulf in December 1970 was an anticlimax. Not a shot was fired. How boring. Um, so, okay, it, what are my conclusions? So the short-term conclusions relating to the actual withdrawal 
is that it took the change of government and a, cha and a, and a change, a great impetus that led to the withdrawal. So William Luce and the, and the Foreign Office officials played an essential role in the found formation of the United Arab Emirates, the state that we know today. For God's sake, don't say that to them. It will get you the, the attention of the, they will not like it. But the evidence speaks for itself. If it hadn't been for the British and Sir William Luce, who knows? The simple fact is the rulers had no choice. But I think we can draw some um, broader conclusions about this case study of British retreat from empire. If you ask me, there seems to be a correlation between the level of intervention in a state and the outcome. In other words, the less the British intervene, the greater the outcome. Yeah. Uh, so I got one final point. To what extent did the British actually leave? And th thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.